You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Um, So we're going to talk about hell today. And I want to start by just sharing a little bit about why we're having this conversation. So a friend of mine reached out, uh, actually the last couple of weeks, we've been having an ongoing conversation back and forth. And she was talking about how over the last several years of her life, the last four or five years of her life in various like uh, conservative Christian groups, she has been taught this standard message of like, believe this or else, um, which was tied into like, well, if you really believe this, then you're going to do these certain types of things. And they weren't like things like, hey, don't murder people. They were like small, right, things that we would kind of argue and debate over whether Jesus wants us to do those things or not. But what, what happened to my friend was that she was actually triggered into a spiral of anxiety where she tangibly and bodily carried around an actual and real fear of being tormented by God in hell by fire forever and ever and ever. This is someone who would have called themselves a Christian, someone who is throwing themselves on Jesus, someone who is, uh, would say, I have faith, but then is in the face of uh, some of the things that she was being taught in some of these circles, I don't know if this faith is actually enough, and is it really true, and did I lose my faith, and, and what's going to happen to me when I die? People that were speaking for Jesus was telling her that she needed to do more. She needed to be more. She needed to believe more that it wasn't enough. And what, what I want to emphasize here is this was not simply something that was in the realm of ideas and faith and religion, that this impacted her daily life. Like she ended up having to go and get on medication and like do all sorts of like things. Walked away, uh, in her words, walked away from Jesus for a little while just because she like needed a mental and emotional break. I need a mental health break from Jesus. If you need a mental health break from Jesus, someone is like talking about the wrong Jesus. And many of us understand this story because it's ours, or at least something like ours. It's a faith that's driven by fear of an angry God who's out to get us. And if we slip up, then we're in trouble. So given the choice, right, we've received some sort of gospel message that was like this. We talked about this a couple services ago. Believe in Jesus or else. Hey, don't you understand that you've done really bad things? You've lied, you've cheated, you've stolen. And if you don't believe in Jesus, then you're going to burn in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. And so uh, being rational human beings, we're like, hmm, I don't know, heaven or hell? And we, most of us decided heaven. 
And, and what I want to ask you is, wait, what was the motivation for that faith? Was it the appeal and the beauty of Jesus? Was it really like trusting that what he's offering you is life or was it fear? And not even fear of God, but fear of like what God would maybe do to me. And so we need to talk about hell. As many of us have grown up, uh, we heard this story probably in a camp, because that's usually how we did this, right? You're in a camp, and we're going to wear you out for several days, and then on the last day, we're going to turn the lights down really low, and we're going to give you this really emotionally manipulative, I'm sorry, really emotionally powerful message, and we're going to call you to come forward, because the flames of hell are licking at your feet, and you've got to come and get Jesus, and then it's going to be great, and now that you're in Jesus, right, you're going to heaven when you die, it's all good, and I think if we're really honest, we all are like, yes, absolutely, and then we left camp, and like maybe for a week or two, we were doing great, but then at some point, we all fell off, and we kind of like went back into normal life again, and like that version of the good news actually didn't change us in any substantial way. What it did is it gave us a golden ticket to go to heaven when we died, and yet when we read Jesus, this is not what we find, and we're going to talk about this and unpack this more over the coming weeks, but Jesus is offering life here and now as well as in the future, but it's something to be experienced and tasted and enjoyed here and now. But as we've grown up, um, we've grown weary, we've encountered a pandemic, and we've encountered the hardships of life, and we've encountered just chaos and lots of stuff. We come back to this, what used to be a central question of this version of the gospel that we heard. I'm like, wait, hell? Like, we're going to just, like, burn in hell forever if we don't have, like, the right information and, like, agree to it? But that God's also really loving and compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and longs for everyone to be saved. And we're like, as we've grown up and we've thought about this, if we've thought about this, you're like, I have to do taxes. I don't know. This has not been on my radar. I'm putting it on your radar, okay? There's this incongruence between the God of love who's, who's gone to the extent of dying on the cross and, oh yeah, there's also this loophole. If you don't have the information then that same God of love is going to torment you forever and ever and ever. That's a good question. It's a question that I think we should ask. And we're going to wrestle with over the coming weeks. Um, but I think what we're going to find today is that the, there's no like, solution to this that's going to tie it up in a nice, neat bow. But we can see that this is actually really messy and a lot messier than maybe we've been taught. And, and with this, what I want us to be careful of is it's really easy. Like, there's some circles who double down on hell and be like, yeah, that's what the Bible says. It's super clear, flames, torment, the devil, thrown in the lake of fire forever and ever. It's like right there, plain black and white English, which is a problem because it's not English. But anyways, but then there's the other side that we're going to be tempted to go on to and just be like, well, no, hell and judgment just aren't really a thing at all. And really, like, Jesus is just kind of one way to anything, and we're all just kind of on this path and journey, and Jesus is one version of that journey, but in the end, God is love, and God is all, and so it's all cool, you know, it's just vibes, right? I'll punch myself in the face later for saying that, but we can't throw hell out, 
And we're going to talk about judgment next week. This became such a robust and important conversation for me that I had to like divide it into two sermons. So you're going to get sermon one, hell one today, and then hell two next week. Hell is so nice. We're going to talk about it twice. Thank you. Thank you. But I want to start today by just like, can we muddy the waters a little bit first? I want to do some deconstruction. Because many of us have been taught the Bible that clearly and obviously teaches something that it does not clearly and obviously teach. But at the same time, we can't just throw it out because on the lips of Jesus himself is some like pretty haunting and scary stuff. And so we have to actually deal with it, talk about it, and confront it. And what we believe about this stuff matters because it shapes what we believe about God and what God thinks of us. Our conversation about hell is not really a conversation about hell. It's a conversation about who is God and what is God like. And I don't care who you are or what you say, what you believe about God trickles down into your real, actual bodily life. And if you believe that this whole thing is just like a a tax return where you're going to file your paperwork with Jesus and then submit it so that you can go about your life and at the end of the day you get a refund or at the end of the day you owe, right? Uh, We are missing the boat. So there's a lot to untangle. I'm going to try and do it as quickly as I can. But let's also like take some time to sit in this because there's a lot here. Because there's a lot, and I knew ahead of time that this is going to be a lot, we've created a way for us to have a, like an actual conversation where you can interact here. This is not me standing up here, thus saith the Lord. This is me as someone who's trying to understand these things myself, as a brother in Christ, who's trying to faithfully follow Jesus, who's trying to faithfully read the Bible, who's trying to faithfully live into the good news, um, having a conversation with you. And so you can go to redemptionhou.com slash Kwanda, as it's become affectionately known as, or Q&A, as I intended it. <laughs> and you can submit any questions that come up during this series. Like, this is a real and actual safe place for you to ask questions, for you to wrestle with this stuff. For us, just to pretend like we believe it's true, even when something in us isn't actually like bought in, is, is not really what Jesus is inviting us into. One of our key values is exploration, and that means this is actually really a safe place for you to doubt, for you to question, for you to just say, I just don't know right now. Really and actually, that's what faith really looks like. But that's another sermon for another day. So there's three things we're going to cover this morning, all right? So here's the lay of the land over the next 30-ish minutes. Number one, we're going to talk about the confusion about hell. So with a brief overview of what the scriptures actually say, I'll just go ahead and tell you, it's really confusing and not super crystal clear. There's the like answer to the confusion. But I want to actually show you this. I want to tangibly walk you through some of these texts, show you some of the language so you're not just like taking my word for it. Number two, uh, I want to show us, well, then what can we say with some actual certainty? I think there are some things that we can grab a hold of and we can go, oh yeah, no, no, this is what Jesus is actually really saying. This is the real, this is the true with a capital T thing that we can grab a hold of and actually trust and believe in. And then number three, I want to return to our story of Jesus and Lazarus and see that Jesus is actually inviting us into hope rather than fear. That the whole point of Jesus's parable about the rich man and Lazarus is not, you better watch out or God's going to get you, but it's actually the opposite of that. 
Okay, so let's start. Confusion about hell. Okay, so here's, here's beautiful, liberating good news for all of you. There is no common teaching in the church on hell. Like, take a deep breath and just, like, appreciate that for just a second. So from, I don't know, 33 AD-ish, okay, we're rounding, until today, the church has disagreed on exactly what final judgment and the, the state of the condemned looks like and means. This is true between like branches of Christianity. So like Catholics believe certain things and Protestants believe certain things and Episcopalians believe certain things. But even within that, there's a wide range of like within Catholicism, there is no standard doctrine. In order to be a Catholic, you have to believe this about hell. In order to be a, I'm trying to think of another one now. I don't know. Episcopalian, thank you. Thank you from the crowd. Uh, Episcopalian, you don't, you're right. There is a broad swath of ideas and teachings that you can hold. In fact, in the earliest church, like the, the closest people that we have to Jesus and his disciples, there is a broad range of ideas about what this actually means and what it looks like. And so like, this is actually really good news. And anyone who insists, no, 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 you have to believe this in this very black and white detailed, this is what hell and final judgment actually looks like, uh, like just be free from that. Be free from that. Now, I told you our temptation is going to be to just erase hell altogether. So this doesn't mean in our freedom that we can just kind of like invent hell and make it whatever we want. And it's like this place where you go and it pretends to be the good place, but it's actually the bad place. And you meet lots of wonderful people there and you become best friends and you overthrow the metaverse. And that's a sitcom. That's a thing. Okay. Um, right. So you can't just like make it up. You also can't just pretend like hell, final judgment, like this is not a thing. We're going to talk about judgment and wrath next week. And like, what in the world do we do with that? And some different ways of understanding this final judgment. But for today, I want to just kind of make things messy. Our earliest and clearest creeds do not include hell in them. Isn't that interesting? The only thing the Apostles' Creed says about hell is that Jesus went into it and won it, or like had victory over it, that he conquered it. That at the, the core teachings of the church, the core music, the singing, like the earliest hymns that we have, there is no conversation about you better watch out or you're going to go to hell when you die. And so what does the Bible actually say? Um, the Bible's depiction of hell is a collage of teachings. And there's, again, a ton to unpack here. So as you have questions, we'll address them. Um, write them down, jot them down so you don't forget them. We're going to go over some of this really quickly. There's a ton more that we could cover. I'm trying to just grab a handful of things. So the first real like problem that we have with hell is that there is no like hell in the Bible. There's a, a number of different things that we have conflated into hell. Well, wait, why have we done that? Because King James got this idea, hey, we should make a translation of the Bible. And as they're making that translation of the Bible, they took all of these Old Testament ideas and New Testament ideas that were talking about life after death and they conflated them into one single translation. So if you look at your King James Bible and you compare it to, as if you all have like King James Bible sitting in your lap right now. If you look at the King James Bible and you compare it to say the NIV, where the King James says hell, it's very likely the NIV is gonna translate that as something different. 
But in the collective psyche and understanding of what the Bible says, like the King James has already done its work. And so we have this whole imagination of what hell is and what the Bible says about hell that is maybe a little bit inaccurate. And so here's what I mean. There are, there are two words to talk about life after death, like the, the state or location of life after death in the Old Testament and the New Testament that are very similar. The Old Testament word is sheol. So some of your Bibles are going to translate this as like the dead or the place of the dead. Many translations call it the grave. Some more modern translations are just going, yeah, I don't know, sheol. We're just going to say sheol because we don't really exactly know what's going on here. But King James translated this word as hell. So I'll give you an example of this. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my soul rejoices, my body also rests secure, for you do not give me up to Sheol, or let your faithful ones see the pit. You do not give me up to the place of the dead. You do not give me up to the grave. You do not give me up to hell. Those are communicating two very different things. Death itself in the Old Testament world was hell, so to speak. And heaven, or heaven, air quotes, is life. Life in the land in proximity to the presence of God in the temple. So then uh, I remember I went to seminary. It was a conservative seminary, right? So if y'all are hearing this and some of this is kind of scary, um, like I want you to know like this is actually really common knowledge. Super conservative seminary, dispensational. If you don't know what that means, let's just think rapture left behind series. Very, very much believe in like a literal lake of fire, right? So this is the seminary that taught me this. So we're, I'm in seminary and they're like, hey, we're going to write this paper on hell and you're going to look at all these different languages and, and you're going to understand that the Bible's not super clear on what this is. And, and this part just absolutely floored me. So there's this place called Hades in the New Testament that's a lot like Sheol in the Old Testament. And if you know like the movie, the cartoon Hercules, right, it's the place where dead people go and it's also the name of the God who's like over the place where dead people go. And so in the New Testament, all of the followers of Yahweh kind of take this cultural language and understanding and just use it to describe their place. So Sheol becomes Hades by the time of Jesus. Tracking with me so far? Even if you're not, I'm going to keep talking, so it's fine. But here's what's wild. So Many translations, including modern ones, will take what we just read about the rich man and Lazarus, and there was a man who went to Hades, and they're going to translate that hell. Here's the problem. You go to Revelation chapter 20, and it talks about the end of all things, and in Revelation chapter 20, verse 13, we're told that Hades is thrown into the lake of fire that burns forever and ever and ever. Wait, so hell is thrown into hell? I'm confused. So wait, and if the lake of fire isn't until after judgment, then where do dead people go today? Oh, well, they go to Hades and it's really bad. You don't want to go there because it's hell, but it's not hell because hell then gets thrown into hell. I don't understand, right? So I'm writing this paper and I realize like, oh wait, this is really confusing. Surely some conservative theologians have like taught something that's going to make sense of this. And so I go and I open up this like really popular systematic theology that goes through all the different Bible verses and talks about these things. And literally y'all, in one section, he talks about hell is the place where if you don't believe in Jesus today, you will go. And then the next chapter, he says, no, 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 but you don't go to hell until after resurrection and final judgment. Like, but uh, hold on. Right, and my point is not, ha ha, that guy's wrong and I'm right. My point is the scriptures are unclear. And I think 
part of the problem here is we're trying to read this as a literal spatial location when the scriptures aren't talking about a literal spatial location. We'll more on that in just a second. So what did they believe about hell, or, or sorry, what did they believe about Hades? Hades was the place where all dead people went, the righteous and the unrighteous. And as this idea about hell began to culturally develop among rabbis and about uh, around Talmuds and teachings in Judaism from the Old Testament to the New Testament, what they began to teach was this idea that everyone goes to Hades, but upon arriving there, you were either escorted to a good corner of Hades where there was comfort and joy and peace and delight, or you were escorted, drug, literally, to a bad place in Hades where you were really close in proximity to the lake of fire, so much so that you could smell the sulfur, and you had to sit there and wait as you watched the future that awaited you after resurrection. And it's this cultural teaching that Jesus is using in the parable to teach a lesson. And the point of the parable is not, hey, y'all, let me tell you what happens when you die. That's completely missing the point. So they have this idea of Hades. So if you want to be biblically faithful, then you need to believe in Hades. Okay, that's, that's the point. Just kind of kidding. Um, this is messy. Because there's a whole other word that Jesus uses to talk about eternal torment and punishment. And that word is Gehenna. It literally means the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. Oh, yeah, that place, right? You can go there today. Like, you can get on a plane, go to Jerusalem, and go and stand in Gehenna, or as the King James says, you can go and stand in the middle of hell. It's fantastic. I've never been there, but... Or Google Earth, right? You can Google Earth into hell. Now your Sundays are going to be eventful this afternoon. Congratulations. So uh, here's an example. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. And this is the, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the most, like, hopeful and joy-filled and beautiful sermon like Jesus is preaching and what is Jesus preaching here's what he preaches but I say to you anyone who is angry with a brother will be subjected to judgment and whoever insults a brother will be brought before the council and whoever says fool will be sent into fiery hell Jesus that seems excessive I don't know like, what's up, fool? Ah, oh, no, like, I've done it. I had a friend who actually believed that in high school. She was like, she used to say, what's up, fool, all the time. And then she read this and was petrified because she thought because she used that word, Jesus was going to throw her into the lake of fire. Like, uh, hold on, we might be misreading this. So what in the world is fiery hell? Well, it's Gehenna. It's this location, and you might have heard of this. It's an actual place. It's a valley just outside the city walls of Jerusalem, and so some people in like modern writings and conversations about this, they're like, it's a, it's a trash dump that burns forever and ever and ever. And it's where they take all of the carcasses and their trash. And so that's why there's worms there. And there's some like possibilities that this is actually part of what's going on here. Um, but the problem with that interpretation is the earliest we have anyone talking about the trash heap is like 1200 AD. So some rabbi is like, oh yeah, they understood it as this. And so that's like kind of late, makes sense. But like, is there anything else? Oh yeah, oh yeah, there's a lot else. So the valley becomes a symbol of God's judgment and condemnation of the wicked. Well, why? Because Judah, uh, Israel, is taking their children out into this valley and burning them alive to the God of Molech. 
If you know anything about Judaism, dead bodies are unclean, murder is unclean, uh, like going out and murdering your children, and idolatry is unclean. This place is a putrid pile of ungodliness in like the truest sense of the word. It is devoid of holiness. It is devoid of beauty. It is devoid of peace. It is devoid of like order and shalom. And so it becomes like a byword for everything that Israel like could become. And so what happens here is that as people come into this valley to burn their children the valley becomes associated with defiledness. And we hear that word and it's like super foreign to us. Think about it in this way, pollution. I love this. I heard this on the Voxology podcast, another shout out to Voxology podcast. It's like my jam right now. Um, but this idea in the Old Testament of like cleanness and uncleanness, we're like, what do we do with that? Is it like sin and not sin? I don't really even know. Don't touch a carcass. Don't touch a body because it's unclean. We're like it didn't do anything wrong. It's just a dead body. What, what's the deal there? Think of it as pollution, and there is in, within God's like crisp, clean air of creation and goodness, pollution has entered it. And so there's these weird things like, hey, if someone gets killed in a field, don't touch that field for X amount of times. And the idea is that field has now been contaminated by the cursedness of sin. It is polluted. And so pollution is like invading the good, uh, clean air of God's creation. And so this valley becomes the most polluted place on the face of the earth. It's a symbol of, of rejection of God, not, not because of like God's like really angry at you, but rejection of God in the sense that you said, no thanks God, I'm going to go this way instead of your way. And so this valley becomes a symbol of cursedness. And it seems, uh, Jeremiah uses it this way, and it, this seems to be the main idea that Jesus is picking up on. He uses it 12 times, sorry, 11 times in the Gospels. This fiery valley. In Jesus' day, there was a variety of opinions and teachings, but the like take all of them and look at what they teach about it. And the summary is this. It becomes a literal place that symbolizes an eternal state or maybe better put an eternal reality. So the second thing that happens in this valley is it's also becomes like the symbol for when the Babylonians come in and destroy Jerusalem, tear down the temple, destroy the place where God supposedly dwells. It's compared to the burning, smoldering fires of their idolatry in this valley. And so it stands for judgment upon the people who have gone this way instead of that way. So there's a great book. It's out on the bookshelf. It's available to you today. <laughs> um, so first one back there gets it. Uh, it's written by Bradley Jersak, uh, and he, it's called Her Gates Shall Never Be Shut. And he comes to a certain type of conclusion, which we'll talk about next week on hell, but in that, he is going to go through very meticulously and explain all of these different languages and how this is used in the, the rabbinical teachings surrounding Jesus. Like, brilliant, fantastic work. So if this, any of this is super intriguing to you, he does a deep dive on it. You'll enjoy that. If any of this is not, don't worry about it. You can ignore the book. But here's what he says. 
For Jesus, Gehenna referred primarily to the self-destructive consequences of rebellion. It's the thing that you bring upon yourself, which give rise to bitter mourning and the worm of regret, weeping and gnashing of teeth, both for the pain that we have caused and the pain that we cause ourselves. Gehenna is judgment, absolutely, and may even point secondarily to some final judgment, but the picture is first and foremost about the destructive wake left behind by our own sin here and now. It's not an afterlife or eternal conscious torment. It is quite literally what Paul calls the way of death. And so what we can be sure of is this. And this is the main point. Jesus' teaching on Gehenna and Hades is primarily not about what happens when we die, but about the life we are invited to live here and now. Very similar to the heaven conversation, right? Right, So if we take the Lord's Prayer and we flip it, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of darkness's will be done on earth as it is in hell. This is how Jesus is using this language of judgment and condemnation, that you can actually begin here and now to bring hell on earth and that hell on earth is being brought to you in various ways. And so more than anything, hell is a reality and not a location. And that, yeah, in the future, there might be this like accumulation of this reality. Again, we'll talk about that next week. But that what matters to us here and now is that it is a reality that exists among us and asserts itself upon us right now. It is not something we are waiting for. We're not waiting to be shamed. We're not waiting to get cancer. We're not waiting to be condemned by others and pushed out. We're not waiting to be abused. We're not waiting to be judged. We're not waiting to be condemned. We're not waiting to experience death. I mean, we kind of are, but you get what I'm saying, like a lifetime picture. And so I um, go back to America's greatest television show, The Wire. And if you know me, then you know that I will die on this hill, that The Wire is America's greatest television show ever produced, that ever will be produced. If you haven't seen it, I apologize, and may God bless your soul. Speaking of being condemned... So The Wire is this series about uh, like basically crime in Baltimore and the police force in Baltimore and it's like shows all sides of it and it's so beautiful and nitty gritty and all this but there's this one episode in season three called Hamsterdam and in this the the Baltimore Police Department is in this notoriously rough part of Baltimore and the citizens of Baltimore, like the citizens of this like neighborhood are like telling the police we've had enough. Like we can't even go grocery shopping without getting mugged. There's bodies all over the street. You have to do something. We need our neighborhoods back. And so the, the major gets this brilliant idea. He wants to create these safe zones. And so he rounds up, literally, they, they take them and put them in a bus. He rounds up all the users and all the pushers and all the dealers. He puts them in a bus and he puts them in an auditorium. And he's like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to create these safe zones. And in this block, you are free to do whatever you want as long as you don't murder someone. And we will leave you alone. And so they do it. And they call it, they, they use Amsterdam as like they, you know, drugs are legal in Amsterdam. And so it's kind of like Amsterdam and the dealers mishear them and they call it Hamsterdam. And so that's the whole thing with 
Amsterdam there. Um, but the, the police basically agree to look the other way and while people are buying and selling and using drugs and it becomes a place where all of the abuse and dehumanization that, that drugs brings into the world, including the violence and the prostitution, is all like now centrally located on this one dilapidated abandoned city block. And outside of that block, the neighborhoods that were once like in the middle of a war zone, like gardens are growing and people are like peacefully walking down the street and people are able to sit on their front porch and talk to their neighbors and like growth and beauty and vibrancy is happening outside of this because they pushed all of the violence and all of the toxicity into this one city block. And so there's a scene that I love because one, it envisions so perfectly the imagination that we ought to have as the church. Um, But two, I just love it because it brings faith and theology into the real world in a way that's really striking. It's a deacon of a local church who's in this neighborhood who's like, yeah, it's great. Our neighborhoods are clean, but look. And he points to the one block. And there's this conversation between him and um, Major Howard is his name. So the deacon says, no offense, but you're like the blind man and the elephant. It's a lot bigger than what you got your hand on. You just can't see it. Major Howard says, see what? The deacon says, a great village of pain. And you're the major. Where's the drinking water? Where's the toilets? Where's the heat? Where's the electricity? Where's the needle truck to provide clean needles? Where's the condom distribution? The drug treatment intake? Half of these people are dying on their feet and the other half's gonna catch what's killing them. Major Howard responds, Look, they ain't no worse off when they was all over the map. Now they're just in one place. And the deacon says, yeah, and that place is hell. Whatever we want to believe about sin and hell and judgment and condemnation, I think this picture is incredibly helpful for us. If we are pursuing a life that leads to death, if we are pursuing things that do not give us life, the worst question, or like the the scariest thing is not what will God do to us? The scariest question is what if God lets us have it? What if God lets go? What if God says, go get it? It's easy and convenient for us to continue to believe that hell has nothing to do with this place when the reality is the realm of the dead, the realm of condemnation, the kingdom of darkness is already right here and right now among us. And it is a kingdom that we are both victims of and perpetrators of. We perpetuate it and it crushes us all at the same time. But there's good news. Okay, so this is gonna get... I think this is beautiful and brilliant. And little uh, Southern Baptist evangelical me is like so liberated by this. This is going to be weird for some of y'all, but that's okay. So there's this whole tradition of belief where Jesus dies. And what happens after he dies? Does anyone know? Where does he go? Yeah, you're like, I don't know. I'm afraid to answer this. It's this weird question, right? Uh, I don't know. Maybe he goes to heaven. But if you grew up Catholic, you're like, no, I know exactly where he goes. He goes down into Hades. It's right there in the creed. He descended into hell. And then like, there's even, there's like New Testament Bible verses that talk about this. You're like, wait, what in the world do we do with this? Um, hold on. Let's return to our story of Lazarus. 
And I want us to see, and this is not my brilliance, this is uh, someone else's, okay? So I'm borrowing it. It's the guy, the book that I told you about that's in the back. So there are three layers to the story of Lazarus. So Lazarus is, um, right, the the parable of the rich man and the poor man. And the rich man ends up languishing in Hades in this like torment. And the poor man is like nestled and comforted and safe in the bosom of Abraham. And so the first layer is like historically, Jesus is actually sharing this parable with the religious leaders. And what Luke tells us is that the reason Jesus is telling this parable to the religious leaders is because they loved money. So what's the parable about? Well, you better believe in me. You're going to go to hell when you die. Nope. The parable is about, hey, you love money more than you love people. I think as Western human beings who live in a very affluent place, we should read that parable with open eyes and a little bit of fear and trepidation. But there's a whole other layer to this. Layer number two is the way that Luke is actually using this, right? So there's the historical, Jesus is teaching them, hey, don't love money, love people, right? Like, go and seek justice, give to the poor, help the needy. But then there's like the way that Luke is putting his story together. At the beginning of Luke's story is this great reversal that happens in Mary's song, where the mighty are going to be brought down and the lowly are going to be elevated. Well, what happens in the story? The rich... Uh, you, there's some historical context to this. The rich, like Jewish man, is brought down and sent to Hades. Lazarus is the uh, Gentile name of Abraham's servant back in Genesis, which is the reason that Jesus is giving him the name. Um, it's Eleazar in Hebrew, right? Bring it into Greek, and it's Lazarus. So, so Lazarus is the Gentile representation. The Gentile is lifted up, while the Hebrew is brought down. Uh, in modern day ways of thinking about this, the insider is pushed out while the outsider is brought in. And so the second layer that's working here is this idea that the outsiders are going to be insiders. And the ones who insist, no, 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 I'm inside, they get pushed out. But then, and this is really the point There's a third layer that is so amazing. And according to this scholar who wrote this journal on this, uh, he says that the only place he's ever seen it is in Pope Leo, which is really kind of cool. So like we're in weird territory now, y'all, okay? Talking about Pope Leo. But he says that the ultimate punchline of this parable is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right? So in the story, there's this chasm that no one can cross. There's this gap between Hades and Abraham's bosom, and no one is able to go back and forth. But when Jesus dies, tradition holds, and some of our New Testament says, that he descends into Hades itself. Well, once you go to Hades, you can't cross the chasm. You can't go over to Abraham's bosom. You're locked in. You're condemned. Okay, so there's this really crazy story in the Gospel of Nicodemus, which I know is not in your Bibles, okay? And so it doesn't teach anything super weird, but this is kind of weird. But it tells this, this mythological story. So this isn't the idea that they thought, oh, this actually happened, or this is an actual way. That... It's a way of understanding what Jesus is doing, okay? 
So they tell the story of Beelzebub, who is the Lord of the Flies. He is Satan, Hasatan. And, and he's down in Hades, and he's having an argument with Hades, who is like the Lord of the place of the dead. And Beelzebub's like, we got him. We're about to kill the king of light. This is it. And Hades is like, I don't know, man. This feels like a bad idea. John the Baptist is over there, and he's screaming to everybody, hey, he's coming down here, and when he comes down, we're all going to follow him out. I don't think you should bring him down here. Beelzebub is like, sit down, Hades. I got this. He's, he's right where we want him. We're about to put all of the kingdom of darkness upon the God of light, and we're going to kill him. And so they do. And then Jesus burst forth into Hades with this blinding light. He kills Hades. He kills Beelzebub. And then he goes down and then down and then down. And he goes down to Adam and Eve. And he grabs them by the hand. And he races up into resurrection. And all of humanity follows with him. So that in the early church, when they paint the resurrection of Jesus... He's always followed by a throng of people. So what, what do we do with that? Jesus tells us this in Mark chapter 3, verse 27. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. The reality is that Jesus has entered the kingdom of darkness and whatever, right, however you want to imagine that, whether that's like a spatial location that's under the earth, sure, knock yourself out. Or some sort of reality that exists in another dimension, yeah, why not? But the point is this, he has done it. it whatever it is, it is real and it is actually affecting our lives and Jesus has entered into it fully. And he has plundered it. And so the gospel is not a gospel of fear. It's a gospel of hope. When you and I here and now experience Hades and hell and condemnation and death and the powers of the kingdom of darkness that are still very much at work in this world, we can cling to this. The reality of the old cosmos has been put to death in Jesus on a cross. And the power of the kingdom of light is here among us and is still also coming. And these fiery symbols, maybe they're symbolic, maybe they're literal, that's not the point. They are pointing to a reality that is true. And they also point to the reality that Jesus has entered that himself and conquered it. This is incredibly good news. So destruction is never the final word. Damnation is never the final word. As Paul says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The good news of the kingdom of God is not a good news of fear, but one where vindication and redemption are offered to every single one of us, the exiled. Not by power, not by coercion, not by fear. But Jesus joins the damned in the depths of the earth. He joins the accursed on the tree, as Hebrew says, becoming a curse himself. He goes into the depths of death itself and condemns it all on a cross. 
So that in Jesus' self-sacrifice and in solidarity with sinners like you and me, he offers peace, inclusion, redemption, and hope. Not just for tomorrow, not just for when you die, but for right here and right now. So I want to conclude with this quote from Jesus. It's from Revelation chapter 1. It's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Verses 17 through 18. This is John talking about, like he's looking and seeing Jesus, and this is what he says. When I saw him, I fell down at his feet as if I were dead, right? Terrified. But he placed his right hand on me, and he said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the one who lives. I was dead, but look, Now I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. Please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.